Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Well, it's great to be here this morning. I look forward every single time I met influencers. I want to ask you a question. How many of you are on uh, in Twitter? You're on the Twitter sphere, are you? Just a few, several. You can, if you are, you can follow me at Dr. Mark Rutland. But here's the point. I was uh, scrolling through some Twitter on last night while I was in bed, and I fell asleep. And I, when I woke up this morning, I realized that when I dozed off, I retweeted somebody's tweet. <laughs> Thank God it wasn't something horrible. You know, I, I hate the church and there's no God or something, you know. Thank God it wasn't. It was actually something pretty okay. But I thought to myself, an unintentional message is that is not what God wants for us. He didn't just want something the accidental tweet from God, right? I believe that this morning that God has given me an intentional message for those of you that are here and for influencers. I don't know that I've ever felt as clear on that this is an intentional, this is not some accidental tweet from heaven. I think God has a message for you today. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn to the book of Genesis, the 37th chapter, the 37th chapter of Genesis, I'm going to begin reading at verse 5. Genesis 37 and 5. I want to speak on God's dream for your life. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brethren, his brothers. That doesn't mean brethren in the faith. It means actually his blood brothers. And they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaf stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. Let's pause for a moment because obeisance is a bit of an antiquated word. It means to bow, but it means more than to bow. To bow is just an action. But to make obeisance indicates the motivation of the bow. It is to bow reverentially as in the presence of a high official. So it's not just that the sheaves bend over, but they bend over as if that sheaf is, has dominion. And then to verse six again. And he said unto them, here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaf stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said unto him, shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream. And he told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this, that, what is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed bow ourselves down to thee to the earth? Now, let me pause a moment. Look at this. Joseph does not give the meaning of the dream. Do you see that? He just tells the dream. 
his father and his brothers understand the meaning of the dream. So listen to what I'm telling you. Those who hate you and your dream may understand its implications better than you do. Then to verse 11. And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. And his brethren went to feed his father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem. Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said unto him, Here am I. And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it is well with thy brethren and well with the flocks, and then come and bring me word again. So Israel sent Joseph out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found Joseph, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed from hence. And I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. Okay, now, why they were in Alabama at this point? I just read the scripture as it is. Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. And they saw him afar off before he came near unto them, and they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say some evil beast hath devoured him. And then we shall see what will become of his dreams. Put your hand on your Bible, if you will, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that in the next few moments, your Holy Spirit will bear witness with our spirit. Speak to us, O Lord, unto those who long for a word and those who have tried to insulate themselves against your voice. Both the same. I pray that you will brush aside every barrier and speak to us. That when we leave here this day, we will say one to another, surely the Lord has spoken unto us. In the mighty name, Jesus, the strong son of God. Amen. Decades ago, a young Baptist preacher made a speech, preached a sermon, if you will, from the steps of an American landmark. And in the context of that sermon, he just said these words, I have a dream. And the landscape of American culture was forever changed. In fact, the very landscape in this room is made possible as it is now because of that dream. There is a power to a dream. There's a power that draws to it resources and energy and, and cooperation. People want to be a part of a dream. There's something about it that is magnetic. One of the most powerful things anyone can say is, I have a dream. But remember, it also draws to it the power of negativity. When Joseph had a dream, his brothers envied him. They hated him because of the dream. The dream that God gave Dr. King changed America. It also got him shot to death on the balcony of a motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Not everybody is going to love your dream. That doesn't mean the dream is wrong. It doesn't mean the dream is from God. It just means that you need to understand that the dream that God has given you is so powerful that it will draw to it 
strength, resource, energy, and positivity, it will also draw to it negativity. You have to be careful with whom you share your dream. When I was uh, 28 years old, I was a United Methodist minister, 28. Uh, Lincoln was in the White House at that time, I believe. It hurts me when you laugh at me. My wife and I were worn out by the ministry, tired, defeated, uh, unctionless, and ready to quit when we both received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it exploded in our lives so huge that the ministry began to take off. It exploded beyond anything I'd ever imagined overnight. In the context of that, I began to receive a dream from God of a wider dimension of ministry It was so new to me that I didn't even have the vocabulary to know what to call it. I could see it, but I I didn't even know how to describe it. Because when when I was a child growing up in a very nominal Methodist home, we went two, three times a year to church, and the only concept of ministry that I even knew was the pastor of a Methodist church. So when God called me to the ministry, I understood that call to mean be the pastor of a local Methodist church. So when the Holy Spirit came in our lives and this other dream opened, I I didn't know how to describe it. I I lacked the vocabulary, but it was so real to me. So I went to a, I was appointed to a certain ministerial committee by the Bishop of the North Georgia Conference. I was the token young person on the committee. So I went in and there was this meeting. I don't even know what we were discussing now. That's lost, but it got all finished and it got finished early And the man who was the committee chair, for some reason, just said, well, we're finished a little early. Does anybody have anything you'd like to share? And it seemed like the propitious moment. So I raised my hot little hand and said, actually, I do. And I told them my dream. I said, God has awakened in me a dream for a different kind of ministry than I'm doing now. I want to travel from place to place and country to country and continent to continent. I want to preach in in great churches and tiny villages. I, I want to preach this new thing that has happened in my life. And I said, I don't know what to call that, but I, I just see it. I can see it so clearly. And, and they turned on me. They attacked me. I, I was so stunned. They just began to denounce me. They said, that's stupid. They said, that's called a missionary evangelist. Nobody does that anymore. They said, that went out with Dwight L. Moody. You're in the wrong century. And they said, you're, you, this is a stupid decision. They said, you're a rising star in the Methodist church. You're going to, to, you're one of the youngest PhDs in the denomination. You're going to flush your career right down the tubes and, and nobody will walk off into Africa. Nobody will ever hear of Mark Rutland ever again. I, I, I realized in that moment what Jesus meant when he said, never pour your pearls out before swine because that room full of pigs turned on me. They trampled my dream and they rent me. When that was over, I was so stunned. It just was a kick in the solar plexus. I staggered out to my car. Literally, I got out to my car. I was 28. These were old dudes. They were were supposed to know stuff. I wasn't so arrogant at 28 as to think I knew everything in the world. Maybe they were right. Maybe I was on the verge of, of making a catastrophic decision. I got out to my car and I I laid my arm up on the 
hood the, up on the roof of the car and put my forehead over there. And I heard an audible voice behind me. I thought it was God. It nearly scared the liver out of me. It said, forget them. And I spun around and the only man in the room who hadn't said anything was standing there. And he had followed me out to the parking lot. He said, forget them. He said, if God has given you a dream, then follow it. I said, what, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with those men? He said, they have all lost their dreams and they saw the light of joy on your countenance and they envy you. They envy you. He said, you know that big guy that hammered you the hardest? I said, yes. His face was so angry. What's that all about? He said, I've known him. We grew up together. He said, we went to junior high church camp together. And, and I remember the night, and he knows I remember the night when he stood up in a worship service and testified that God had given him a dream of being a missionary evangelist. And he said, he never followed his dream. He played it safe. And now he hates you because God has given you that dream. He said, now forget them, forget me. And whatsoever the Lord saith unto thee, do it. I, I, in so far as it's been within me, I, I've tried to do that. I, I've preached on every inhabited continent of the globe multiple times. I've been around the world twice. I, I've done all those things. I've tried to do everything that man said to forget those guys and follow the dream. But one thing he told me to do, I refused to do. And that was forget him. His was the voice of encouragement that I needed for my dream right at that moment. Those men might have hammered the dream out of me. You need to share your dream. Sharing a dream is positive. It's powerful. It's important. You need to write it, think it, talk about it, share it. You need to, to express your dream. It needs expression, but you have to be careful where you express it. You need to express your dream in a context where people themselves dream and where they want to encourage your dream. It's one of the reasons I, I love being a part of things here at Influencers. These, these chaps are dreaming a dream an hour and, and, and they want to encourage your dream. There's no dream you could dream so wild, so big, so huge that, that Pastor Ashley and all the others would, would down it. We want to believe in your dream. I want to tell you about the greatest dream encourager of my life. I, I was raised in a very odd family. I, I see a lot of young people here this morning. I, I prophesy to you that as you get older, you'll realize how odd your family was. <laughs> but I, I was raised in a very odd family. My father was a, a vagabond, a real, uh, he was never unemployed. We didn't live out of the boot of a car or something, but, but he was just frequently employed. We just moved all the time. I went to five schools in the first grade. Um, let me hasten to add all in the same year. I saw a guy in the back say, Oh, me too. Um, uh, I averaged about three schools a year growing up until junior high school. We entered into a relatively sedentary period of time. I only went to three junior highs and two high schools, but we moved all the time. As a result of that, you're constantly the new kid, you're always fitting in. You're always trying to figure out what's going on. And, and it, it leaves you, uh, you know, ill at ease and uh, constantly trying to figure out where you fit. 
When I was in the fifth grade, we moved to a very rough little rural school, a, a, a small town, actually. Very rough. K through 12th grade, all in one building. And the school was divided. There were like, not gangs, but it was like gangs. There was all the children of professional fishermen who were opposed to all the children of the people who worked in a paper mill. So all the paper mill kids and all the professional fishing kids fought all the time. The halls were full of fist fights. It was, it was very scary. And I was ill at ease and out of place culturally in every way. And, and I, and I felt, um, threatened. I know as you look up here at me now with this massive physique, it's, it's hard for you to realize that in the fifth grade, I was small for my age. The bright spot in that school was my fifth grade teacher. She, she was a, a sweet little fat lady that just loved us. And she was not supremely educated. She actually taught me a mispronunciation of Mesopotamia that was to haunt me later in life. When I was at the University of Maryland in a history class, when I publicly referred to the Fertile Crescent as Mesopotamia, it was an awkward moment, but one for which I have forgiven her in the light of her greater good. She had one educational practice that I wish every teacher in America would take over. Every first Monday, she would lean across her desk and twinkle her blue eyes and rub her chubby little fingers together and look at us mischievously and say, well, it's dream day. We cheer. We loved dream day. That day, there were no lectures. There was no class. There was no lessons. There was no homework. We pull our desks into a little semicircle and Mrs. Burkett would work one by one by one. Each child talk to us, talk about our dream, process it with us, help us visualize it. No matter if it took the whole day, there were only two rules. One was everybody had to have a dream. You could change every month and most everybody did, but everybody, you couldn't opt out. When it was your turn, you had to express a dream. The second thing was you couldn't laugh at anybody else's dream. No matter what they said, you couldn't twitch an eyebrow. You couldn't smirk. If you did next month at dream day, you had to stand in the hall and nobody wanted to miss dream day. So she would go each child. I remember it, it, what she did was incredible to me. So here's Dalton Tull. He's up 37 years old in the fifth grade. A dangerous Hulk of a kid. His shoe size exceeded his IQ. And she said, Dalton, what's your dream? Dalton said, I want to be an astronaut. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh yeah, that's going to happen. If Dalton goes into space, it'll be with the chimpanzees. <laughs> but Mrs. Burkett acted like it was the most rational thing she'd ever heard. She said, oh, Dalton, won't that be exciting for me? Someday I'll be sitting on my couch watching the TV and it'll say, Colonel Dalton Tull, United States Air Force and NASA. He's climbing into the nose cone of his spaceship. Wait a minute. He wants to make an announcement and you'll slide the visor up and say, I dedicate this flight to Mrs. Burkett and all my classmates in 5A. And we'd all cheer. And I remember thinking that this imbecile's going to do this. <laughs> then she said, here's Little Maisie Blanchard. Maisie, what's your dream? Maisie Blanchard was a skinny little girl with dishwater blonde hair and from a house so poor, she wore the same dress to school every day. 
She just wash it at night and wear it the next day. And the only pair of shoes I ever saw or ever wear was her big brother's cast off tennis shoes. Maisie, what's your dream? She said, I want to be a movie star. Mrs. Burkett said, oh, think how that will be for me. I'll go into the theater with my popcorn. I'll sit there in the dark. The lion will roar. The credits will come up starring Maisie Blanchard. She said, I'm going to turn to everybody in the theater and say, you may not know this. I taught Maisie Blanchard in the fifth grade. I don't know if she was a Christian. I wasn't a Christian. I don't know what she believed about the eyes of faith. I just know we began to see each other through her eyes. I looked at Maisie Blanchard and I thought, this girl's going to be rich and famous someday. I'm going to be nice to her. Then she said, now, here's the new boy. Well, I knew who that was. I was 14 before I knew my name. I thought my name was New Boy. I thought I was a Native American. She said, here's the new boy. She said, Mark, what's your dream? I was as shocked as anybody in the room when I answered without a moment's hesitation. It erupted out of me volcanically because I don't know that anybody had ever asked me that. I don't know that I have ever said to myself what my dream was. She said, what's your dream? I said, I want to write books. I don't know if I thought books had been a huge comfort to a weird little kid from an itinerant family. I thought maybe my books would comfort some other weird little kid from a weird family. I don't know what it was. But the minute I said it, I regretted it compared to astronaut and policeman and cowboy Writer of books seemed so prissy. I just glared around the room, waiting for somebody to smirk. I'm going to say, yeah, dream this. <laughs> but Mrs. Burkett took that dream up in her hands, and she breathed the breath of life on it. She said, oh, Mark, that's going to happen. She said, someday I'll, I'll go in a bookstore, and there'll be a display of books that says Mark Rutland, and I'm going to buy a book, and I'm going to tell the lady at the cash register. I taught this boy to write. I don't know what happened in anybody else in that room. I don't know what became of anybody else in the class. I don't know if Dalton went into space even after he got out of prison. I don't know. <laughs> but I know something happened in me. There was an audible sound in my little breast, a click. The tumblers lined up. The safe door flew open. Something happened. It was as if that had already happened. Last September... 2019, my 18th book was published. <laughs> hundreds, hundreds of thousands of copies sold of 18 books worldwide. And I do not believe that I ever would have written the first word of the first book if it hadn't been for a little fat lady that couldn't pronounce Mesopotamia. God wants to bring people in your life that will breathe faith on your dream. Find those people, be around those people, share it, encourage each other's dreams, believe in each other's dreams. The second thing is this. The dream process is something like the birth process. There's the, there's the moment of conception where the dream comes in. Look, in the birth process, let's be honest, conception is the funnest part of the whole thing. So there's the moment when you receive the dream. It's so exciting. It's so fun. You, you receive that. And then there is this extended gestation period 
where the dream resides inside. It grows, it moves, it, it blossoms. And then finally, the dream finds a, a there's a, a pressure against the birth canal of your creativity. It longs for expression. It longs for fulfillment. But from point A to point Z, that process may not be at all what you think. Remember, God's geometry is not what you learned in school. With God, the shortest distance between any two points may not be a straight line. You will never convince me until Joseph himself tells me in heaven, I'll never believe that from the moment he received that dream in his father's tent, that he said, I know exactly how this is going to happen. My idiot brothers are going to throw me in a hole in the ground. They're going to tell my dad that I was killed by lions and wolves. They're going to pull me up, sell me into slavery. I'll be taken behind an Ishmaelite caravan to Egypt. I'll be sold to an Egyptian aristocrat like a used car. I'll become the CEO of his household. I'll be falsely accused of rape. I'll be thrown into prison where I'll languish for years. I'll be brought up out of prison for translating the dreams of of Pharaoh, and I will become the second most powerful man in the world under Egyptian domination. Meanwhile, a famine will come upon Israel, and my father and my brothers will come all the way to Egypt to seek help, and not recognizing me, but thinking I'm an Egyptian prince, they will make obeisance to me. None of that ever occurred to him. In other words, the process may not be what you think. God, God wants to mature you. He has to get the circumstance right. He may have to mature others. All of those trucks have to arrive at the intersection at the right time. That's the reason I used to say to, to young people, I, I, I spent 16 years as a university president, and I, I love the little brats. I'm, I mean, <laughs> our beloved students. I love them, but but sometimes they would, they would say, tell me the dream. And then they'd say, now what do I do? Now, now what should I do now? I'd say, pass English. <laughs> do your homework. Right now you're in college. Do college. Do this. God, God is in charge of that gestation period. All of that may, may take time. And when you get there, it may not look like what you think. One time uh, we moved uh, to, I was in the second grade and I uh, went to the, the third school of the year. Any of you ever move in new in a school and you just, nobody bothers to explain anything to you. You just have to fit in, right? So this school, they were getting ready for some kind of a big patriotic tableau of some kind. So every morning, all the first three grades, first, second, third graders would come in an auditorium just like this, and we practice these patriotic songs, okay? And there was one of them that just electrified me. I'd never heard it before, but it was a song about a mountain. No, see, nobody ever explains songs to children. Children don't hear what you hear. They're, hear, they're hearing phonetically, and, and they don't hear what you hear. I, um, you didn't grow up. Anybody who grew up in a liturgical church where you sang hymns? Anybody? I, re I remember a hymn we used to sing when I was a kid. I couldn't understand it at all. Gladly, the cross-eyed bear. I, who, who was Gladly and why was he cross-eyed? I, I, every time we'd sing that, I always say, I'm Gladly, the cross-eyed bear. I, 
and what about the fat man at Christmas? What was that all about? Round John Virgin, mother and child. Who was Round John? I ne- Why was he at the manger? I never knew who Round John was. Nobody tells kids anything. So this one song we're singing, it was all about purple mountain majesty. I don't know if it just touched my creative mind. Purple mountain majesty. What would a mountain look like that was named purple mountain majesty? I thought if I, before I die, I want to see purple mountain majesty. One day I got home from school. It's not an unusual thing. We moved constantly without any notice. Sometimes I would go home from school. There'd be a moving van in front of our house. I'd be in class. Somebody would uh, come to the door and say, Mark Rutland, report to the principal's office. The boy next to me said, Ooh, you're in trouble. I'd say, no, we're moving. <laughs> Had one great advantage. <laughs> I never wrote a term paper. <laughs> Teachers say, this will be due at the end of the semester. <laughs> I said, I'm out of here. So one night, my father announced, we're moving to California. I said, California? I said, are we going to drive through the mountains? He said, well, you bet we are. I said, are we going to see Purple Mountain Majesty? (laughs) My father said, well, yes, we will. Oh, my. I was wired. About an hour and a half out of Fort Worth, my father pulled the car over to the side of the road and he said, now listen to me. We're going to the mountains. We're going to see Purple Mountain Majesty. If you mention it to me again, you'll not live to see it. (laughs) We finally, one day, my mother said, Mark, get up and look out the front windshield. I looked out the windscreen and there against the distant horizon, the mountains, and they were purple. (laughs) There it is. We're here. How many of you know from the first moment you can see the Rockies until you actually get to anything that looks like a mountain? It's a long, torturous journey. Finally, we started up into the mountains. And I said, Dad, are we going to go to the top? He said, we're going right to the top. I said, Daddy, please tell me the truth. Are we going to the tip top? He said, yes. I said, what about the tip, tip top? He said, the tip, tip top. (laughs) Finally, we wound way up in the mountains. He pulled off to one of these, you know what I'm talking about? These overlook things. And he said, there we are. I said, no. No, you, you said the tip tip top. You promised. He said, this is the tip, tip top, and I'm going to throw you off. (laughs) I hurled myself in the back seat and dissolved in tears because that little second grader could not explain to those adults. I had seen Bugs Bunny's car go to the tip, tip top of pyramid shaped mountains. I just knew that our car was going to like a, a, a seesaw on the top of a purple mountain named Majesty, and we were going to rock back and forth until my father would say, all right, everybody to the front, and we'd shoot down the other side. Look, we were in the top of the most beautiful mountain range in America, 
And I nearly missed it because I was fixated on a cartoon image that was not real to start with. God may bring your dream to pass and it be right in your fingers and you miss it because you're looking at the, the symbolic dream that he gave you. So how does it work in real life? So here's a, a, a co-ed at a Christian school somewhere. She has a dream of being a movie star and winning the Academy Award. And she falls in love with some kid who wants to be a minister. And he says to her, Hollywood movies, pastoring a local church. I don't see how this works. So she shelves her dream and marries him. A couple of years later, they're pastor in some little church somewhere. And they ask her to produce the Christmas play, which she does. And that night, everything that can go wrong goes wrong. The, the, the backdrop falls over. It, it knocks the manger over. A little plastic Jesus rolls across the platform. But none of the people in the room can see any of that. All they see is their little Johnny dressed up like a shepherd. And the play is over. Everybody troops off down to the basement of the church for hot chocolate and donuts. But she sits alone in the front row saying to herself, this this is fine for my husband. What happened to my dream? Then a little guy comes in with a flower. It looks like he's been chewing on it. And he says, this is for you. This is for you. He says, I've never been in a play in my life. And tonight I was a wise man. This is for you. Now she can blow that off. Or she can take that chewed up dandelion and clutch it to her breast and say, at last, my Academy Award. The dream may not look like what you thought. It may take longer to get there than you imagined, but God's infinite resources will bring it to pass in his time, his way. Yes. Hold on to your dream. And your dream will hold on to you. When I was in South India, I went to a very, very large uh, boys' home in Tamil Nadu. And uh, the old lady, she's been in heaven now for years, but uh, she ran the boys' home. Uh, I sat with her after the worship service in her office. She had a horrible, disfiguring scar on the left side of her face, like a big, thick red hand. It just lay across her face and pulled her eye and her mouth this way. She told me that when she was a little girl, she had pulled a Coleman lantern off of a high shelf and it exploded on the side of her face. From a poor family, plastic surgery was out of the question. And frankly, as I looked at her, I wasn't sure it would help much anyway. She said her mother was a bitter and angry woman. She said, as a little girl, she began to have a dream of holding babies and rocking babies. And, and she would share with her mother, I, I'm, I'm going to be a mom. I'm going to have babies. Her mother, bitter and angry at life and, and at God, said to her daughter, that's, that's not from God. That's a satanic trick. What, what man would ever give you a baby? You will never have a baby. 
You better take care of yourself. You better get smart and you better take care of yourself because no man will ever have you. But she continued to have the dream until finally her mother forbade her. Do not ever mention that dream to me again. It's a satanic trick. The girl worked her way through college and made phenomenal grades. She won a graduate scholarship to the university in New Delhi, work in business and earned an MBA. When she graduated with her MBA, she returned to her mother's village the night after she graduated. And that night in her mother's house, little hut, she dreamed it again. The next morning as the two women worked on breakfast, she said to her mother, you know, I dreamed that dream last night. I was holding a baby and rocking it and there were two on either side of me. She said, I, I know God's gonna give me a baby. Her mother spun around and slapped her and said, I told you not to ever mention it again. She said, Dr. Rutland, with tears streaming down my face and the, and the slap of my mother's hand on my face, at that precise moment, the phone rang. She said, I picked it up and it was the bishop of the South India Archdiocese of the Church of South India. And he said, I understand you just graduated an MBA. He said, the old lady that ran our boys home has had to leave because of ill health. And I was wondering if you would go out there with me and take a look at it. She said, that slap, that anger, all that welled up inside of her. And she said, Bishop, I'm disgusted that you would call me. When I was working my way through college, you didn't send me a dollar. You didn't give me a scholarship. South India Church never helped me one moment. Now I graduate with an MBA and you insult me by thinking I'm gonna come and run your crummy little rundown boys home. I'm insulted. He said, please forgive me, I've miscommunicated. I'm not asking you to be the house mother. I just wanna hire you as a consultant. I want you to go out with me, look at the building, look at the books, tell us what needs to happen and help us find the next house mother. I just wanna hire you as a consultant. She said, oh, Bishop, I'm sorry. Of course, I'd love that contract. He came with his driver and picked her up the next day. They drove way out in the country to the girl's home, to the boy's home. And she said there was a circular drive, which I went on. So we pulled up in that circular drive and she said, when I stepped out of the car, she said, little boys came out of the windows and the doors, they came around cheering and yelling. They're jumping, surrounding us. She said, what in the world is going on? Finally, she said, a little four-year-old ran and threw his arms around my hips and looked up into my face and said, are you our new mother? She said, he looked in my face as though he couldn't even see my scar. He looked at me with such eyes of love, I realized he didn't even think I was ugly. And I turned to tell the bishop, I'd like to reconsider. I may want to be the house mother. She said, when I turned, his car was driving out the main gate. She said, I never saw him again. She said, Dr. Mark, I learned two things. If God gives you a dream, he can bring it to pass his way, his time. It may not be what you think. She said, I, I, I thought I would give birth. She said, I've never been with a man and I've never given birth, but I've raised more sons than any woman in India. She said, my dream, my dream came to pass. God's way, God's way. The first thing I learned is you can trust God. I said, what's the second thing you learned? She said, oh, you cannot trust bishops.
You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.